And uh, I don't know how far we will get today. I, I feel very, very confident we will not finish the book yet today. And uh, this is our third week of dealing with First Samuel. And um, I have three pages of review and then 11 pages of notes to try to finish the book. So I, I, I don't think we're going to get that far today. And uh, I would love to. There are some beautiful and powerful things in the remainder of the book of Samuel that we have yet to cover. But I just don't think we're going to get near that far. Um, but we'll see. We'll see what time allows, what the Lord allows, and just try to follow after Him this morning. Amen. First Samuel chapter 3, we will take our text. Praise God. First Samuel chapter 3, and beginning with verse number 19. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him and did let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan even to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. The Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So today we are on part three of our study of the book of First Samuel. Amen. Let's put our Bibles down, and let's lift our voices to the Lord right now. Let's ask Him to speak to us in this study of the Scripture this morning. Can we do that, everybody? Let's lift our voices to the Lord right now. for it, Lord. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Could we just lift our voices, lift our hands, and worship the Lord for just a moment this morning? Can we do that? Let's take a little bit of time and just worship Him. I love you, Jesus. I exalt you, Master. You are so wonderful. You are so wonderful. You are so wonderful. I love you, God. I love you, God. I love you, God. Hallelujah. Praise God. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since we uh, did this. Last week, we had Brother Owens with us, and he did a tremendous job of following the Holy Ghost and ministering to this church once again, as he always does. But uh, we have uh, it's, it's been a couple of weeks since we dealt with this book of 1 Samuel, so please bear with me as I do a little bit of review to bring us all back up to speed as to where we are in the study of this book. I pointed out to you that uh, the book, uh, actually the books of First and Second Samuel, which originally were just one book, uh, when they were written it was just one book, but it was divided uh, years later. But these two books provide the time of transition in the history of Israel from being ruled by judges to being ruled by kings. Amen. Uh, understand that, that when the, the Israelites came out of Egypt, they had one leader, and it was the prophet uh, Moses. And 
Moses was their leader, and Moses uh, led them out of bondage. And then at his death, he appointed a successor, Joshua. And Joshua ruled over the people of Israel and led them into the land of promise. At Joshua's death, there was no single leader over the children of Israel. Uh, no one continual man who ruled over them. Uh, and instead, there were judges. And, and these were not uh, lawyers who sat in a courtroom. But these, the word judges literally means deliverers. And that's what God provided. What would happen? Uh, because there was no leader. Because there was no leader. The Bible says that every man did what was right in his own eyes. And, and that's a very dangerous thing for us to fall into. Because I'm going to tell you, I don't care how good you think your spiritual eyesight is. If you only do what you think is right, without some counsel in your life, without some leadership in your life, you will invariably make some wrong decisions. It's just going to happen. It's a part of humanity. It's a part of what we are in our uh, human nature. And, and so, uh, as Israel would start doing the wrong things, though they thought they were right, they would end up uh, in, in, uh, in turmoil, in trouble, uh, in bondage. Uh, they would end up with all kinds of problems, and God would raise up a deliverer who would come in and deliver them from their enemies and, uh, and, and get them to turn their hearts back to God and, and they would serve God again for a while and, and then the deliverer would die and, and they'd start the cycle all over again. And so this happened during the time of Judges. And actually then the book of Ruth, uh, the book of Ruth actually identifies itself as happening during the time when the judges ruled Israel. And so it happened during that same time period. Amen. And uh, then First and Second Samuel uh, actually, as I said, provides this transitionary period. Because what you find in these two books, you find the last two judges that ruled Israel and the first two kings that ruled Israel. The last two judges to rule over them, of course, were Eli and Samuel. And then the first two kings were Saul and David. And, and that's what you find in these books of First and Second Samuel. Now, uh, just again for a point of information, the, the, the difference between First Samuel and Second Samuel is that First Samuel ends with the death of Saul and Second Samuel begins uh, with David... Uh, becoming king. And so the, the, the kingdom of David is the beginning point and the dividing line for First and Second Samuel. Is everybody with me? And that's how we, we understand these books. Now, um, as I pointed out to you uh, each week, it, this uh, First Samuel was an extremely difficult book for me to try to outline. And evidently it was difficult for everybody because every commentary I went to found some other way to try to outline it, and none of them were consistent in their outline. Um, and, and that's because the book really, it, it just pulls from this and pulls from that, and everything's kind of jumbled together, and, and you've got overlapping. No matter how you try to divide it up, you've got overlapping going on. And so it's, it's, it's difficult, and that's what's made it difficult in me in the teaching of this book uh, to be able to get a whole lot done because... It goes in so many different directions uh, 
that it's hard to just give you an overview. Uh, you've got to touch on these things and these points to bring it all about. So uh, I really did not intend to spend this many weeks on any book, but here we are. I don't apologize for it. Um, you're probably uh, perhaps getting more knowledge of the book than what you, you wanted. I don't know. But, but anyhow, I'm learning things in the process as well, and, and I enjoy I enjoy learning. Amen. And um, so, so this was the outline that I finally decided upon as, as, uh, as poor as it is. It was the best I could finally come up with. And that is that chapters 1 through 4 describe the leadership of Eli. Now, as I said, there's a great deal of overlapping because chapter 1 doesn't even start with Eli. Chapter 1 starts with Samuel, Samuel's parents, and the birth of Samuel. And then Eli is introduced along the way in chapter 1. But really, it, just so we can understand time periods, Eli was the judge who was ruling over Israel. But he was not a warrior like most judges. He was a priest. And yet he was the judge over Israel. And uh, chapters 1 through 4 talk about that time in which Eli judged Israel. Uh, chapters 5 and 6 discuss uh, a pivotal time in Israel's history, and that was the capture of the Ark of the Covenant and all that transpired uh, as a result of that. Chapters 7 and 8 then begin dealing with the leadership of Samuel. And the focus in those two chapters uh, covers uh, Samuel and his leadership. And then chapters 9 through 31 uh, really deals with the kingdom of Saul. And we are introduced to David during this time period. And so... Uh, the kingdom of Saul and the early life of David is chapters 9 through 31. And as I said, there's so much overlapping uh, that happens in these chapters um, that this is really not a good outline, but it's the best I could give you. So chapters 1 through 4, we talked about the first week, uh, the leadership of Eli. And as I said, it really begins uh, with a certain man named Elkanah and his wife Hannah, who was barren. During an intense time of prayer, amen, she was there seeking God, asking God for a son, not for her sake, but for the sake of the people of Israel. And it's then that we're introduced to Eli, and what we see in him is not good, because this man was so far from God. Though he was a judge, though he was a priest, he was so far from God, he could not tell the difference between intercessory prayer and drunkenness. Here was a woman lost in prayer, and the priest, the judge, thought she was drunk. And, um, and, and, and this was just the first little hint at the kind of condition Eli was in. It was not a pretty picture. Amen. Of course, God answered Hannah's prayer, blessed her with a son. The son's name was Samuel. Uh, he was brought to the house of God, and there Hannah lent him to the Lord. Then we continue to read on through these chapters a little bit more about Eli, about what's going on in his household. His two sons were also priests, but they were doing things they should never have done. Amen. They were taking more than they were supposed to take. They were dipping into the till beyond what God had allowed and uh, beyond the limits that God had set. And it caused the people to despise even giving to God, created a travesty among the people of Israel. It really did. And, and I've, I've, I've brought to you, when we talked about that, the typology even of what goes on today and how sad it is that there are so many charlatans 
in the ministry today. And, and really, that's what they are. They are charlatans. And they're not interested in saving souls. They're interested in padding their pocketbooks. It's, it's sad. It's sad. But it's a fact. It really does go on. And uh, thankfully, that's not the case for every man who calls himself a preacher. But it, it is the case. And the bad thing is they give all preachers a bad name. They really do. And uh, they give uh, offerings a bad name. And they cause people to hate to hear any preacher even talk about money uh, because of it. But that's exactly what happened with Eli's son. So the problem is that Eli, who had res full responsibility for his boys, refused to do anything about it. He refused to correct them. Uh, he, he just let them go on about their business. And, and they grew continually worse, even to the point of when women would come to the tabernacle, these married sons would take these women uh, who were there to try to worship God, and they would take them off and, and uh, do all kinds of horrible things with them right there in the house of God. Sad, sad picture. And again, Eli, you know, Eli said, now, boys, that's a no-no. You're not supposed to do those things, but... He wouldn't really deal with it. He wouldn't really address the situation. Amen. And uh, so God sent a word of judgment to Eli and said, there's some, some things that's going to happen to you because you won't deal with your sons. And uh, God said, among them, both of your boys are going to die in one day. And that did indeed happen, and judgment fell. Uh, we also talked about the call of God that came to Samuel early in life, even though he was brought up in a household full of backslidden priests. Yet God spoke to Samuel. And I pointed out to you when I discussed this that you don't have to be bound by your circumstance. Don't, don't tell me about how poorly you were brought up. Don't tell me about what a difficult childhood you had and then say, I have no other choice but to live this way. I'm telling you, you do have a choice. You don't have to repeat the sins of your father or your mother. God is a merciful God, and He can deliver you from that. Amen. Praise God. And He did with Samuel. And, and Samuel came to be a great man of God, though he was raised in the worst kind of circumstances. God spoke to Samuel one night, spoke to him audibly. It, it, it awakened Samuel from sleep. Uh, Samuel thought it was Eli and finally determined it was God. And God began again to give a second confirmation that there was judgment coming to Eli. And uh, Samuel took that uh, word to Eli the next morning. And um, Eli had no fear of God, no respect of the word that came and just said, well, it's God. Let him do what he wants to do. And instead of repenting, instead of seeking God, instead of asking for mercy, uh, Eli just wasn't phased by any of it. He was so far from where God wanted him to be. Chapter 4 then tells uh, of the armies of the Philistines coming against Israel. And just as God had said, judgment fell on both of Eli's sons in one day. Both of them died. But it, uh, it was worse than that. For the Philistines captured the ark of God, which to the Israelites was the symbol of God's presence in their midst. And the ark of God was taken from them uh, when they brought word to Eli and told him, your sons are dead and the ark is taken. The Bible says when he heard that, uh, he fell backwards. He fell on his neck. He was a heavy man. He broke his neck. He died. So not only did both of his sons die that day, he died that day. Amen. And uh, his daughter-in-law gave birth 
the shock threw her into labor. She gave birth to a son whom she named Ichabod, which means the glory is departed. And I pointed out to you when I taught uh, that lesson that really the glory had not departed. The glory was resting on Samuel. It, it wasn't resting on the ark. It was resting on Samuel. Amen. But they thought it was the ark. And then, then we talked about in the last lesson two weeks ago, chapters 5 and 6, and the capture of the ark. And though it was a symbol of blessing to the Israelites, it was far, far from that to the Philistines. And uh, they, they put the ark in the temple of their false god as a trophy of war. And we talked about what happened as a result. Their, their god was laying prostrate the next morning uh, before the ark of the covenant. And they set him back up. He came in the next morning and his hands and his head were cut off, uh, laying again on the ground. And, and they took the ark out of there. And then God began to smite, smite the Philistines. And uh, they began to pass it around from place to place. They didn't like the judgment that was falling. And finally they decided the best thing we can do send it back to the Israelites. They put it on a cart, pulled by two milk cows, and sent it back to the Israelites. Uh, when the Israelites received it, really, they should have began experiencing blessing, but they didn't. And, I, and this is kind of where we closed that lesson two weeks ago. They rejoiced to see it, the Bible says, but yet they did not reverence it. For they opened it up, looked inside. They were not supposed to be touching this thing. And so God began to send judgment on them as well. And... Uh, uh, and so here, uh, that's kind of how we concluded that lesson um, a couple of weeks ago was the fact that they, even though they were rejoicing, they had no reverence. They had no respect. They had no fear of God. Amen. And I pointed out to you that we still need a healthy fear of God in this age. Amen. In fact, while I was at the camp meeting this week, I was talking to some other preachers. And, and, and again, we began to talk about how it, it, it's a New Testament. It's not Old Testament. It's a New Testament principle that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Amen. He is a God of mercy. He is a God of love. But He is also a God of righteousness and a God of judgment. And we need to understand that principle. And we need an old-fashioned fear of God. We really do. We really do. There is not enough fear of God anymore. And we need a revival of the fear of God. In fact, when you read through the book of Acts, we like to talk about the miracles that happened. We like to talk about all the souls, the hundreds of souls that were converted, the, the thousands of souls that were converted, sometimes multitudes. The Bible doesn't even give a number that happened. But I'm telling you, throughout that book, you will read again and again, and the fear of the Lord was upon the people. And, and, and I'm telling you, I think that's one of the reasons that America is not seeing revival like God wants us to see is because we don't have a fear of God. We have so conditioned our mind that God is love, and He is. But we believe that that love is a permissive love. Well, hallelujah. We have come to believe that that love is a permissive love, that God loves us so much we can do anything we want to do, and God's just going to turn His head and look the other way. He may not be happy about it, but all is well. But that's not the God of the Bible. Never has been, never will be. Amen. God does love us. God does love us. God is merciful. God is just. He is forgiving. But He is righteous. He is holy. And we need to have a fear of of God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God.
All right, so let's let's begin now with chapter 7 and see how far we can go uh, through this. We've only been covering a couple chapters a week. Hopefully we can go a little bit farther than that. But uh, chapters 7 and 8 deal with the, the, uh, the beginning, at least, of the leadership of Samuel. Now, the first thing that we find, remember we closed off chapter 6 with the Israelites not being blessed by the ark of God, deciding they had to do something with it. They had to, they had to do something with this ark. And, uh, and, and, and so uh, they wanted to know what to do. And so chapter 7 opens dealing with the return of the ark of God. But here is what I want us to see as we read these next few verses. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. A return of the ark is not enough. There's something else God is looking for in this process. Let's read 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. And the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and brought up the ark of the Lord and brought it unto the house of Abinadab and the hill and sanctified Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass, while the ark abode in Kirjath-Jerim, that the time was long, for it was twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now, now, now look, Israel's got the ark, but they're lamenting after God. The ark is here, but for some reason, God isn't. We've got all of the religious items in place. We've got the church structure where we need it, but God's not present. You know, the Apostle Paul said the time would come that there would be those who had a form of godliness, but they denied the power thereof. I'm telling you, church, we've got to be careful of this very same thing, that we can get all of our P's and Q's right, and yet God not be in the house. They lamented after the Lord. Read. And Samuel spake unto all the so house of Israel. So Samuel spake to the house of Israel. Saying, If ye do said, return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Asherah from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Asherah, and serve the Lord only. <laughs> Isn't this amazing? They got the ark of God. They're wondering why God isn't in their presence. And yet they're worshiping false gods at the same time. And, and finally, finally they decide, you know, we might ought to ask the man of God what the problem is. The Philistines are still giving us fits. We're still losing our battles. God's not anywhere to be found. What's the problem? And Samuel said, look, a return of the ark is not enough. There's got to be a return to God and God alone. You can't serve God and serve the world at the same time. Choose you this day, Joshua said, whom you will serve. You cannot... Elijah stood on Mount Carmel and asked the people... Listen, this, was this, this is the story of Israel's life. Joshua, about to die, said, choose this day whom you're going to serve. Why? Because they are vacillating between God and idols. 
Elijah comes along many years after the story we're reading. And, and what does he do when he stands on Mount Carmel? How long halt ye between two opinions? You're trying to worship God and Baal. Can't do that. Well, right here in this very story, the same thing is going on in Israel's life. We've got God, but we got the world too. We got God in one hand, and we got the world in the other hand. And we're going to straddle this fence. We're going to try to play both sides. Do you know, Jesus, when Jesus came along, he said, No man can serve two masters. You can't do it. You hear me this morning. You can't serve two masters. You're going to have to choose. Are you going to live for God? Or are you going to live for the world? But you cannot do both. And so, and so, the children of Israel put away Balaam, they put away Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. They sought God, as you read on down through this chapter, with fasting, with prayers of repentance, and God finally delivered them from their enemies because they turned their hearts to Him. Now, as a result of God's help, Samuel erected a memorial to remind the people of what God did for them when they returned to Him. Samuel chapter, uh, 1 Samuel 7, verse 12, read, then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen, and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. And, and Ebenezer literally means the stone of help. That's what it means. And so Samuel put a stone and said, Look, this is to remind you, the next time you want to go serve some false god, you better take a good look at this stone. And remember, God only helped you because you got rid of those false gods. Because you turned back to Him in repentance and in total submission. God came along and helped you because of your surrender to His will. You better remember that. Remember that. And so the memorial was erected. Amen. In fact, uh, as they turned to God completely, God restored everything that Israel had lost. God brought it all back to them. Listen, verses 13 through 14. The Philistines were subdued, and they came no more into the coast of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron even unto Gath. And the coast thereof did Israel deliver out of the hands of, Philist of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and Amorites. And so I want you to see that everything, everything the Philistines had taken away was restored when God was put back in His rightful place. Are you hearing me this morning? When we finally put God on the throne. You know, some of you young people may remember, we heard a tremendous message a few years ago um, at, a, at a youth service, had our young people there, and the preacher preached that in every life there is a throne and a cross. There's a throne and a cross. And you've got to decide who's going to be put where. If you put yourself on the cross, then God gets to sit on the throne. But if you're going to sit on the throne, what you've done is crucify to yourself the Son of God 
afresh. That's what the Bible says. If you're going to sit on a throne, you put him back on the cross. When God is sitting on the throne of our lives, God will restore. I am preaching to some of you this morning while you sat here sleepily. I'm telling you the reason why you're still having some of the problems you're having is because God is not sitting on the throne of your life. You're still in control. You're the one who's wearing the crown. But if you will ever submit yourself, put yourself back on that cross, put yourself in that place and die out to your carnal nature and to your will and let God assume His rightful place as the King of your life, I'm telling you, God will restore the things you've lost. But until you allow God to sit on the throne, things are not going to work the way you want them to work. They're not. I'm telling telling you in the Holy Ghost today, I'm telling you in the Holy Ghost today, that the reason you're having the problem you're having right now, for somebody in this building, I'm talking to you, the reason why God has not heard your prayer is because you are still on the throne of your life. And you need to let God, you need to surrender yourself to the place that you say, God, it doesn't matter to me if you fix this problem or not because you're God. And I'm going to serve you and I'm going to give you every ounce of my effort regardless of what you do. You've got to reach the place Job reached. I talked about this last Sunday night. When you say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. God, I don't care what happens. I don't care if you never fix this problem. You're still going to be my God. I'm going to let you run my life. I'm going to quit complaining about it. I'm going to quit fussing about it. I'm going to quit trying to figure it out. I'm just going to surrender myself and let you be God. Hallelujah. When Israel finally did that, God turned everything around. God fixed it all. And so Samuel became judge in Eli's place. We read this in verse 15. For Samuel 7, verse 15, read. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. Samuel judged Israel. So Samuel became the judge over Israel and remained in that position till the day he died. He was still a judge. Now, there is a a sad, sad side note that is found in this section of the outline. It's found in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. Because Samuel was a great man. I'm telling you, Samuel, Samuel really, I don't know if he really gets the kind of credit he needs. Samuel was a tremendous prophet to the people of Israel. He really was. He was a man who walked with God, who heard from God, who did what God told him to do. Even there were times when God, uh, one time that, that I'm thinking of right now, that God spoke to Samuel and told him to do something. And he said, you know, I better be careful how I do this because it could cost me my life. But he did it. He did it. Amen. And uh, Samuel was a great, great prophet. But in spite of that, now, again, Hear me, hear me. This is why I'm telling you, the world is so twisted in their pushing of we are only the result of our upbringing. Uh, You know, I talked about this a couple weeks ago. 
it seems like a lot of the world excused Michael Jackson and all the things he did because, well, he had a bad childhood. And, and others, you know, I've, I've heard of, of others, mass murderers. And well, his dad abused him. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't condone abuse, and I think you understand that. But I'm telling you that to excuse vile, wicked lifestyles simply because of the way a person's raised is ridiculous. Does it have an impact on you? Yes. Does it affect the way you think? Yes. Will it haunt you all the days of your life? Yes. Will it leave lasting scars? Yes. But you don't have to follow that path. Listen, every one of us have a choice. So I talked to you about Samuel. Samuel's raised in a terrible situation. He's raised in a bad, bad home. And he turns out to be a good man. The other side of the coin is this. Samuel has kids. And they're raised in a good home. They've got an excellent father. A godly man as their dad. Who are we going to blame for the way they turned out? I'll tell you who we're going to blame. Exactly who deserves the blame. They themselves. They made the choices. First Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Read. And it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. All right, now look. Samuel begins going old and he says, you know, I got these boys here. They, they've watched me. They know how to do this. So he turned it over to them. But there's a problem. Read. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel. And the second of his, and the name of his second, Abiah. Uh huh. They were judges in Beersheba. They were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways. But his sons walked not in his ways. But turned aside after lucre. But turned aside after lucre. And took bribes and perverted judgment. And took bribes and perverted judgment. Now they didn't learn that from daddy. They didn't learn that from daddy. And you can't say they turned out this way because of the way they were raised. They turned out this way because they made decisions on their own. When they were faced with the opportunity, they chose to do wrong. I'm telling you, there was so much respect for Samuel that if these boys had just chosen to do right, all of Israel would have accepted them gladly and followed them. They had it handed to them on a silver platter. But they blew it. I've watched that happen. I've watched it happen through the years. I've watched good churches be destroyed. Because the son stepped up. And the son didn't have what daddy had. And the son didn't have the relationship with God that daddy had. Well, hallelujah. Israel would have followed those boys. I believe that. I believe they would. They had so much love and respect for Samuel. They would have done whatever those boys wanted. But they saw how corrupt they were. They were not what their daddy was. You see, even the most godly of individuals cannot force their children to do what's right. why 
I've mentioned this before. My pastor, Brother Howard, uh, was talking one day, and he said, you know, I used to think as soon as I get my kids grown, I can quit worrying about them. And he said, I've learned I worry about them more now than I did when they were at home. Because when they were at home, I could control what was going on. And now they have to make decisions on their own, and I worry sometimes. Did I put enough good in them? Did I help them to make, be able to make the right choices? Do they know which way to turn? Do they know what to, are they going to do what's right? And he said, I have no control now that they're on their own. I have no control over the choices they make. And he said, I worry more now that they're grown than I did when they were still at home. And I understand that feeling. I understand what he's talking about. It, you, you can't force, I don't care what you put in a child when they are growing up, you can't force them to make the right choice. You can't force them to make. They're going to choose for their for themselves. Amen. And so, and so, this this brings us to a crossroads in the history of Israel, because if you're following, and I know you know it's taken us so many weeks to get to this point that I hope that you you haven't lost the flow of what's transpiring here. But, but what, we've, what we've had happen, they, they had Eli and this terrible judge and, and his boys and the terrible things that they did. And, and, and then Samuel comes on the scene and there's a bright promising future and, and Samuel brings about a revival, turns the people back to God and God restores everything they've lost and the presence of God is back in the midst of the nation. And now Samuel's getting old and and what we see in his sons are shades of Eli. And the people say, oh no, not again. What are we going to do now? And so in spite of this great revival that had come under the leadership of Samuel, Israel began to look around. And they made a decision. Let's, let's read chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the, all the nations. Behold, thou art old, thy sons walk not in thy ways. So make us a king so we can be like everybody else. We want to be like the rest of the world. We don't want to be different. We want to be like everybody else. I, I did a good deal of reading yesterday uh, in preparation for today's lesson. And, and I ran across some things that, that were just, I thought, extremely powerful. Uh, one man said this about the request that, that we've read. He said they held a committee meeting instead of a prayer meeting. And now they were determined on taking a retrograde step instead of going on with God. How often is unbelief thus dressed up as the corporate wisdom of committees? Let me tell you something. As a pastor, I've seen this time and time again. I've seen it. Folks that grow carnal, that are not praying like they need to pray. They're not walking with God like they need to. They'll find somebody else that's carnal, that's not praying. 
They'll get together. They'll start talking. They'll decide what needs to be done. They'll decide to take action. And they have a committee meeting instead of a prayer meeting. And the results of the committee meeting are far different than what the results of the prayer meeting would have been. So, they come with this request. We want to be like everybody else. And you hear me. It has never been, nor is it today, that God wants His people to be like all the nations. God doesn't want us looking at the rest of the world to see how they're doing things today. God is not interested in how the world's doing anything. I'm telling you. And I'm watching. I'm watching men who say they preach the truth go to places where, where men are not preaching the truth and they're trying to learn from them how to build a church. I've got a problem with that. I've got a major problem with that. You know, I, there may be some principles I can learn from the business world about the business side of things. But I am not going to learn from the business world how to build a church. Because the things of God are not carnally discerned. They are spiritually discerned. The carnal mind is enmity against God. Well, hallelujah. God doesn't want us to be like everybody else. He wants us to be separate. He wants us to be peculiar. Is that what the Bible says? First, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. Read. Wherefore, come out from among them. And Listen, he didn't say go look at them. He said come out from them. He didn't say be like them. He said be separate from them. Read. And touch not the unclean thing. Don't touch the unclean thing. And I will receive, and I will receive you. And will be a father and unto I'll you. And I'll be a father to you. And, you shall be my and sons you'll be and my daughters, sons and daughters. Saith the Lord Almighty. Now listen, this is a conditional promise. If you want to call yourself the Son of God, you can't try to identify with the world. You've got to identify with God. God said, if you won't touch the unclean, if you'll come out from among the world and be separate from the world, then I'll receive you and I'll be your father and you'll be my son. But it's all dependent on us not being like the rest of the world. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a, chosen generation, a, royal, priesthood, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a, holy nation, a peculiar people. People. That you should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. God has put you on this earth to show forth His praises. Not to look like everybody else. Not to do it like everybody else. Not to act like everybody else. Not to talk. Are you hearing me this morning? God didn't put us here to blend in. He put us here to stand out. So, I, I read on. This is, this is from the book, uh, Exploring the Book, by J. Sidlow Baxter. 
Um, he's the one who said they had a committee meeting and not a prayer meeting. I read on from his writings about this this idea, this concept that they, they came to Samuel saying, we want a king, we want to be like everybody else. And, and I thought this was so good, what he says here. He said, he said, three things, therefore, we ought to note about this demand for a king. First, the outer reason for it was the degeneracy of Samuel's sons. Now get what he's saying. They gave a reason. They gave their reason. Your sons don't walk in your way. He said that was the outer reason. The outer reason. That's what they said. That was the excuse they provided. I read on. Second, the inner motive. was that the people might become like the other nations. The reason they gave was, your sons are not like you, which sounds good. Oh, that, that, you know, and, and Samuel knew that. I mean, they weren't insulting him. He knew that. Your sons don't do things the way you did, Samuel. We want a righteous. We, we want somebody, you know, we want someone like you. Sounds good. But they revealed, perhaps unintentionally, what the motive was. The motive and the reason were not the same thing. Their motive was, we're tired of being different. We want to be like everybody else. And that was their motive. But Baxter goes on. He said, third, the deeper meaning was that Israel had now rejected the theocracy or the rulership of God. God was their king. And Baxter says this was the most serious thing of all. Now, I could spend some time teaching right here. I don't have a whole lot of time. But I could spend some time teaching here because I want to tell you something. I have learned through the years, through all my years of pastoring, and, and, and this year marks for me 25 years that I have spent as a pastor. 25 years. quarter of a century I've been a pastor. I'm going to tell you, in those years, I've, I've learned a lot. Probably had still a lot to learn, but I have learned a lot to this point. You hear me? And I've learned that the reason people give for things is usually they, what they say. Their reason is usually not their real motive. They'll find a reason to give. To try to hide the motive. They want the reason to be acceptable. But there's an underlying motive. And I've also learned that beyond the motive. Beyond the motive. There is a meaning. There's a consequence. There is something that's about to transpire because God's looking at the motive and not the reason. So, so maybe I could put it this way. There's, there's a message, the message they deliver, the reason, the excuse, whatever. The message, the motive, and the meaning. They come and say, this is, this is, and I've, I've seen this. I've, I've had folks... You know, in the 25 years that I've pastored, I've had folks come to me and they're upset about something. They're upset about something. And usually what they say they're upset about is really not what they're upset about. 
That's usually not really what they're upset about. I had a man come into my office one day, and he was he was so upset. He was just, you know, he was beside himself. He was so upset. And, and he said, you know, it bothers me that you stand up there behind that pulpit and drink cold water. He said, you ever, you ever driving down the road on a hot day and you see a, a billboard that's got a glass that's just got sweat coming off of it because of the ice inside? You, see, you, you just stand up there and drink that cold water in front of us. And it bothers me. That was his message. But that wasn't his motive. His motive for being in my office that day was not because he was upset that I was drinking water. You hear me? And it took a while. It took a long conversation. But eventually we got around to what he was really upset about. He didn't like our worship. And he called himself apostolic and had been in an apostolic church for years. Sat on the pew for years. But he didn't like apostolic worship. It took a long time to get that out of him. But I finally got down to what his real motive was. What he really didn't like was the fact that I had really been pushing worship in the last few services. He didn't like that. But he came with a pretense. And I'm telling you, most of the time, most of the time, when somebody comes to me upset about something, it's not what they're telling me that they're really upset about. I'm sorry, but that's the truth. When somebody is confrontational, and I've, I've, I've watched it through the years. I've watched it through the years. I had a man in another city who used to come in, and as soon as service started, he would, he would make a big display of, of reaching down and picking up cotton and stuffing cotton in his ears. He wanted everybody to see he's putting his cotton in his ears because it's just too loud in this church. And he made a big deal about it. And, and I'm telling you, Many times he'd come to me and complain. And in fact, he would tell me, the human uh, eardrum can only handle so many decibels. And, and, and you're exceeding that. And, you're, and I mean, he went through, he almost had a spreadsheet developed for me to show me. But, but you know, in time, in dealing with him, I found that wasn't the problem. That was not the problem. There was a deeper problem. Much deeper problems. Won't go into what his problems were, but anyhow, there were much deeper problems. So I'm just saying, what we see here in the people of Israel, they come, well, you know, it's it's the it's the fault of your sons. That wasn't really the problem. The problem was they were eyeing the world as Israel continued to do throughout their history. The problem was they wanted to be like everybody else instead of be different as God had commanded them to. They had their message. They had their reason. They had their excuse. But there was something else that motivated them to want that to happen. And the problem was they didn't understand the meaning behind it because the meaning was... If we become like everybody else, God is not really our king anymore. God's not really ruling us like He's supposed to. Are you with me this morning? It's so important. I'm telling you, this this threw Samuel for a loop. He was he was blown away because in, 
in Samuel's eyes, from the time that, that Joshua helped the children of Israel take their own land, it was an understood principle that God was their king. And when they come and say, we want a human king, Samuel's troubled. Samuel has got a problem on his hands. So he went to God. And he said, God, what am I going to do with this people and what they're asking me? Let's read uh, verses 6 through 9. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 6 through 9. Well, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel. Please, Samuel. It displeased Samuel. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. So Samuel prayed. Samuel's upset. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people, and all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them, according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me, and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. Now therefore hearken unto their voice, howbeit yet protest solemnly unto them, and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. All right, them. now there's some things that I want to I want to point out to you. If Josh, if you'll help me out here, I want to go back and 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 point out a couple things that uh, God says here. Um, back up to verse. Let's just let's just go to verse eight. Back up to verse 8. I'll, I'll just, a couple things here real quick to show you what God says to Samuel. He said, according to all the works which they've done since the day that I brought them up, even this day wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods. Now look, he said, according to the works which they've done, they have forsaken me. He said, so do they also unto thee. All right, you got that? God said, what they've done to me, they've done to you. And then verse 9, put it up there again. Uh, he says, hearken their voice, how be it protest solemnly and show them the manner. All right, I'm sorry, we'll, we'll come back to verse 9 in a minute. All right, here's what I want to tell you. What God said to Samuel was this. Samuel, there's a principle here that the way people treat the leader I put over them is a sign of the way they're treating me. Now, I don't want anybody to misunderstand me because I'm not up here for self-aggrandizement. I'm telling you, God could strike me down right now and, and I, I'm, I'm nobody, I'm nothing. It's not about me. It's about an office that God created. But we do need to understand this principle that what God is saying, He said, look, He said, you need to understand that the way they're, they're you're their judge and they're saying we want somebody besides you. But understand this, Samuel, that the way they're responding to you is indicative of the way they respond to me. There's a close correlation between the way a person responds to apostolic ministry and the way they respond to God. That's why Paul said what he did to the Hebrews in Hebrews 13, verse 7. Remember them which have the rule over you. Who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Uh-huh. And then verse 17, the same chapter, he, he comes right along and says again, Obey them that have the rule over you, 
and submit and yourselves. Submit your, there's a difference between obedience and submission. We've talked about that. There's a big difference between obedience and submission. Obedience is just doing the act. Submission is doing it willfully. Don't just obey them, but submit yourself. Because they're watching for your soul. As they that must give account, they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that is unprofitable to you. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Now, I, I just, again, I'm not doing this for, to, to pat myself on the back. It's just, it is a part of the scripture, and we need to understand it. it it's, it's got to be addressed. The fact is that. Samuel Samuel felt forsaken. And Samuel went to God and said, you know, I hear you put me as the judge, as the prophet to this nation, and they don't want me anymore. They want somebody else. And God said, well, Samuel, let me just, let me just teach you something here, son. Their rejection of you is just a symptom of a far deeper problem. Because when they reject you, it's because they have rejected me. I'm the one they've dethroned. There is a relationship. You hear me? I, I, I spent several weeks teaching this, thir- this church about apostolic authority. And it was one of the things that I felt led during this camp meeting this last week to, to go back and, and to teach at the camp meeting this last week. I, I taught on authority again. There is a, there's a line that folks cross. My wife and I were talking about this on the way down to the camp meeting. There's a line that folks cross. When people feel like they can, they can just walk up and start correcting authority. There's a line they've crossed. And it's a dangerous line. It's a dangerous line. You say, well, then what do you do? Well, you do what Israel should have done. They should have had a prayer meeting. Did God take care of Eli? He sure did. Did God take care of Eli's sons? Sure did. Did God take care of Samson? Yeah, he did. Will God take care of a preacher that gets out of line? You better believe he will. And I want to promise you, he'll do it far better than you can do it. I'm going to be honest with you. I'd rather, if I, if I could just have a choice, I'd rather you do it. Because when God gets through, It's a different story. The best thing you can do is leave it in the hands of God. Let God deal with it. Let God sort it out. Let God sort it out. Hallelujah. Well, Samuel, as we read uh, back in verse 9, can you put verse 9 back up there again, Josh? I'm sorry. I'm kind of throwing all this out of order a little bit. But First Samuel 8, verse 9, uh, the last thing that he said, he said, Now hearken to their voice. But protest solemnly and show them what they're really asking for. They don't really understand what they're asking for. They've never had a human king. They don't really understand what this involves. Samuel said, all right. So he did. Verses 10 to 18. I've got to hurry. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. 
And he said, This will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, and to be his horsemen. And some shall run before his chariots. Now listen, Samuel said, Look, I want you to understand, this is what you're asking for. You want a king? Let me tell you what a king's going to do. A king is going to take your sons and make them serve him. Now why, why is that a big deal? Well, I'll tell you why. Because understand the mindset. In, in the time of Israel, the more sons you had, the better you could farm your ground, do whatever it is you're doing as a livelihood. Your sons pick up the trade. They, they learn the business. They carry it on. The business expands because you've got your sons. And God said, not anymore. You get a king. He's not going to serve you. Your sons are not going to serve you. They're going to serve your king. In verse 12, and I've got to hurry through this. Verse 12, he says he's going to make them captains. Uh, he's going to put them in, in uh, his armies. They're going to fight for the king. They're going to reap his harvest instead of yours. They're going to be put to work building instruments of war for him instead of building things for you and your family business. He's going to take your daughters and make them confectionaries and cooks and bakers. They're not going to be working around the house anymore. They're not going to be helping you. They're going to be in the service of the king. He's going to take away your fields. He's going to take away your vineyards. He's going to take your olive yards for himself and for his servants. Verse 15, basically what he's saying is he's going to tax you. You're going to have to start paying taxes if you get a king. He'll take your maid servants, your men servants. He's going to take your goodliest young men. He'll take your dog. He's going to take everything you got and put it to work for him. He's going to take the tenth of your sheep. Uh, you're going to be his servants. And then verse 18. Let's, let's read verse 18. And ye shall cry and out in that day. You will cry out in that day. Because of your because king. Because of your king. Which, ye which shall you shall you. have chosen you. And the Lord will and not God hear you in that day. God is not going to hear you. You're bringing this problem on yourself. So don't expect God to fix it. I... I I wish I had a little bit more time here. But I'm going to tell you, this, this is a very important principle right here in verse 18. And again, these principles carry over into the New Testament. You know, when we see Jesus being tempted of Satan, Satan says to him, throw yourself down because it's written. He's given his angels charge over you lest you at any time should dash your foot against the stone. And they'll bear you up. That's in the Scripture. Remember that, Jesus? Well, of course, Jesus. I mean... Jesus is the living Scripture. You understand? Satan said, so just throw yourself down and let the angels catch you. Does anybody remember how Jesus answered that? We know He answered with Scripture, but do you remember what Scripture He used? Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Now, understand, this is what we learn from that passage. Tempting God is... Creating a problem you expect God to fix.
know, you go buy the liquor and say, God, please help me not to drink this. I know I shouldn't have bought it, but it's sitting right here in my refrigerator. God, help me not to drink this. Some young couple goes out, drives off, parks in a dark alley somewhere. Oh, God, help us not to commit fornication. Look, you put yourself in that problem. You're going to have to get yourself out of that trouble. You shouldn't have put yourself in that place to begin with. Don't start tempting God now, asking God to deliver you from problems you created. God said to Israel, look, you're asking for this king. And I want you to understand. In fact, you know why? Now, God told Samuel, said, listen to what they say. This is what they want. So you hearken to them. But I want you to go back and give them one more chance to recant. That's what he's doing. You go back and spell out for them exactly what they're about to get themselves into. Now, if they choose to go forward with it, I'm going to let them do it. But I want them to know that when they start having problems with this decision, I'm not going to help them fix it. So God says, I'll let you have your way. I've been in a discussion the last uh, little bit with some preachers about whether or not there's a quote-unquote permissive will of God. Well, to me, this settles the issue once and for all. Because one of the things they said was that, well, you know, God didn't want Israel to have a king, but he permitted them to have one. That's the permissive will of God. You better go back and look at this again. I don't see the will of God anywhere in this. Yeah, God permitted it, but it wasn't His permissive will. God said, I'm going to permit you to do what you want to do, but I'm taking my hands off of it. Now, honey, I don't want in that kind of will if that's a will. I don't want God to say, I'll permit you to do something, but you're going to have to solve the problem yourself because I'm backing away. I don't want anything to do with that. God said, I'm not going to hear. If, if this is what you want, I'll let you do it. But I'm not going to hear you when you ask for help. I'm going to tell you, sometimes forcing God to say yes to our will is the worst thing that could happen to us. That's why we ought to always pray, not my will, thy will. God, I know this is what I think I need. I know this is what it looks like to me in my finite mind that I need. I know this is what seems to be the answer. But God, in the end, I want you to know I want your will, not mine. Are you hearing me, church? We, we've got to learn this principle. I don't want to force my will on God. I've seen people do it. I've seen it happen. Somebody's determined to marry the wrong person in their life. They get in a mess. They get themselves in a mess. Now, let me just let me just clear the air. I'm going to tell you, once you get married, it becomes the will of God for you to stay married. God's already expressed that. So, so basically what you've done is create the same kind of problem here. Because you didn't give God the opportunity beforehand. For His will to be done. Now you're living with the consequence of your will.
You know, we would all be so much happier if we would simply learn to pray, not my will, but thy will be done. Save ourselves a lot of heartache and headache. Amen. In fact, for Balaam, for Balaam, it was almost fatal. And I, I don't really have time to go into Balaam. We we discussed a little bit about that when we did dealt with the book of Judges. But you, you remember how Balaam just kept saying, God, I want to curse the people of Israel. I want to curse the people of Israel. I want to curse God. kept saying, no, 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 no. Finally, one day, God said, yes, go ahead. Go, go, Balaam, go. Yes, I've said yes. And the reason God said yes is because he had an angel there waiting to kill Balaam. I'm going to tell you something. I don't want to force God to say yes. You hear me? That's, I'm not interested in some permissive will. I want the perfect will of God in everything I do. I can't find anywhere where God ever blessed a permissive will. It's another lesson. Ah, God help me. But that's exactly what Israel did. They forced God. They forced God. In fact, you know, Samuel lays all this out. He said, look, if this is what you want, this is what you're about to get. You're going to get more than you bargained for. But listen to what they say, starting with verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, Nay. They refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, Nay. Nay. But we will have a king over us. We will have a king over us. Hang on. Isn't it interesting that what started as a request has now become a demand? Start out as a request. We'd sure like to have a king. Because look, look, Samuel, you know your boys are not living right. They're not doing right. It would be nice if we had a king. Samuel said, uh, if you get a king, that's what's going to happen. We want a king! We don't care what you think. We don't care what God thinks. We want a king. Verse 20. That we also may be like all the nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words now, of the people. Now, again, they, they drop this whole charade about it's because of your boys. And they're just openly admitting it's because we want to be like everybody else. And uh, so Samuel heard all the words of the people. And he rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, God said to Samuel again, Hearken unto their voice. Listen to what they say. And make them a king. And give them what they've asked. And Samuel said unto the men of Israel, Go ye every man unto his city. And so it was that there was a kingdom in Israel. And a king would be chosen. And Israel would suffer because of it. Are you listening to me? I'm, I'm coming to a close. Musicians, if you'll come. I am coming to a close, but I want you to hear me this morning. It was a tragic thing that happened that day when they decided they wanted to be a king. Now, for these many years, they've had the judges. They've had their own land. They say, we want a king. We want a kingdom. But understand, the first king, Saul. The second king, David. The third king, Solomon. They have three kings, and that's the end of there being one nation of Israel. 
When the fourth king assumes the throne, the kingdom is divided. And never again will, will there be one king who sets over a nation. Over a united nation. It splintered the people of God. Beginning with Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the nation was divided into two kingdoms. Now, this is important. Listen to me right now, would you? I want you to hear it. This is important. Because, and, and the reason, what I'm about to tell you now is just a fact of history, but it helps you understand your Bible when you study your Bible. Beginning with Rehoboam, the kingdom that was divided into two nations. What was called the, the, the northern kingdom... And that was known as Israel. And then the southern kingdom was known as Judah. And that's why as, as you get on reading throughout the book of First uh, Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you'll read about Israel or you'll read about Judah. These are two different nations now. Israel's no longer one nation. It's two nations. And Israel's the northern kingdom. And Judah is the southern kingdom. And, and each nation has its own prophets. They have their own kings. It's two different countries now. It's, it's, it's almost like the United States during the time of the Civil War. You, you've got two different sides, two different factions here. They were all Jews. But they're not a united people anymore. Now, I want you to think about the kings that ruled over the people of God. They asked for a king. Is everybody still with me? They asked for a king, and they got one. While they were united, they had three kings. Saul started out good, but ended bad. Now, let me, let me, let me offer a little explanation here. When I say good and bad, I'm talking about their relationship with God, all right? Whether or not they sought to please God. If I say they were good, that means that they sought to please God. If I say they were bad, that means they were not seeking to please God. Is everybody with me? We're all on the same page. So the very first king of the United Kingdom was Saul. And he started out very well. In fact, we don't have time to get into it today. Next Sunday, we will start with the kingdom of Saul. And you're going to see he had a very promising future. Things looked bright for Saul when he started, but it ended so terribly, so tragically. It was pathetic. The second king was David. David started out good, had some problems along the way, messed up, found forgiveness, and ended good. Really, overall, David's kingdom was a good kingdom. In fact, God was so impressed with David that for hundreds of years, and I talked about this before, for hundreds of years afterwards, God would point back to the kingdom of David and say, because of David, I'm going to spare you. Because of David, I'm going to bless you. Because of David. So the first king started good, ended bad. The second king was really good overall. The third king, Solomon, started good. And ended bad. Then the kingdom split. In the southern kingdom of Judah, there were 20 kings 
prior to the Babylonian captivity. Are you with me? The southern kingdom, Judah, 20 kings before they were taken into Babylon. Of those 20 kings, only seven of them, barely over one-third, were good kings who even tried to please God. Only seven. The other 13 were bad. Had no interest in God. Would not do what God wanted them to do. 13 out of 20. That's not a good record. For the northern kingdom of Israel, it was even worse. They too ended up in captivity. Their captivity was in Assyria. Prior to their Assyrian captivity, they had 19 kings. And all of them were bad. They didn't so much as have one king that sought God. Do you understand what Israel got when they said, we want a king? Out of all the kings that ruled over them, there were very few that did what was right. Very few. If we take the three of the United Kingdom and we take the 20 of the Southern Kingdom and the 19 of the Northern Kingdom, a total of 42 kings. Of those 42 kings, of 42 kings, eight that were good and two that started good and ended bad. Ten of 42 even had any glimmer of hope. Eight of 42 did what was right. I'm going to tell you something, church. Sometimes when we get what we want, it's not what we need. That's why James gave this warning. I'm going to close with this verse. James chapter 4, verse 3. Go ahead and play if you would. James chapter 4 and verse 3. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your own love. Now listen. James said there is such a thing as asking amiss. Asking amiss. And he defined what asking amiss is. Sometimes people think, you know, well, I don't want to ask God to heal me because I may be asking amiss. No, no, no. That's not asking amiss. James said that asking amiss is asking for things that you can consume upon your own carnal desires. Asking God to give you a bunch of money, asking God to make you rich, asking God to give you fancy cars, asking God for popularity or fame. Those kinds of things are asking amiss. But if what you're asking is asking for something that will bring glory to God. That's not asking this. But I want us to understand that in this new, this is a New Testament verse in this New Testament era. It is possible for the people of God to ask amiss. When Israel asked for a king, it had nothing to do with spiritual value. I don't care what they said. It was their own carnal desires. They wanted to be like everyone. Well, hallelujah. I'm telling you, we've got to be careful that we don't allow ourselves to ask 
amiss. I don't want to ask God to give me things that will hurt me. I don't want to ask God to give me things that will be to my own destruction. That's why the wise man said, just give me meat that is sufficient. Don't give me poverty and don't give me riches. That's what he said. And, and that's, a, that's a valid prayer. God, I'm not asking you to make me wealthy. I am asking, I, I don't want to have to be out begging. All I'm asking is, give me what I need to make it through. I'm not asking that my freezer be full. I'm not asking that my checking account be full. Just, just give me enough to make it through today. That's all I'm asking. That's a worthy request. Where we start getting frustrated is we don't have enough for tomorrow. But that's why Jesus said, let tomorrow take care of itself. You wait till you get up tomorrow, and if you don't have enough, there's really not enough there. It's time to go back and ask God again, give me enough for today. And I promise you, if we'll learn to live that way, God will see you through day to day. Well, hallelujah. I, I'm, I'm just going to give you a heads up. As we go through 1 Samuel, there's not a lot of pretty pictures in this book of 1 Samuel. From chapters 9 through 31, it's not a very pretty picture. First couple of chapters, things look pretty good. But they go downhill real fast. And I mean all the way downhill. So if you're, if you're looking... Find some word of encouragement. You're probably not going to find it in chapters 9 to 31 of 1 Samuel. Once in a while, there'll be a bright spot, thank God. He doesn't just leave us under the cloud all the time. Once in a while, there's a little bright spot, but it's few and far between. It's a sad, sad story. And it's all because Israel demanded of God what they thought they needed. Rather than saying, God, if this is not what you want... We want to do things your way. Well, hallelujah. Let's lift our hands to the Lord right now. I'll catch you over time. Let's just stand and lift our hands to the Lord. Can we just write where we're at right now? Would you just ask God to help you? Help you to resolve. Maybe some of you. Listen to me for just a minute, church. Because I, I don't want to paint such a gloomy picture. I don't want us to end on a down note today. I don't want to paint such a gloomy picture that some of you think I've got no hope for the rest of my life. God is still a merciful God. And in spite of the fact that He told Israel, I'm not going to deliver you from this problem, He didn't say, I'm never going to hear any prayers you pray again. He was speaking only of the situation of the king. This is a problem you've brought on, so don't come to me telling me how bad it is that you've got to Because I'm not going to fix that. I'm going to give you what you want. But he still heard their cry. And he still brought them deliverers. And he still had a David that sat on the throne. And he still brought peace to them under the, under the uh, rulership of Solomon. I'm telling you, God still blessed Israel even when they went against his will. There were still times that God heard their cry. And so I don't want anybody to say, well, man, I messed up. I did something. And now God's never going to hear that. That's not, that's not the case. God may not fix the problem you created, but God will still be merciful. And God will help you through those problems. He will give you strength to deal with them. I promise you, He will. Hallelujah. 
that's where we need to have our focus. Our focus needs to be on the fact that God is still a merciful God and He still loves His people. Would you right now lift your hands and I want you to ask God, Lord, even if I've made mistakes in the past, even if I've gone against your will, would you just help me, God, from this day forward to seek you first, to seek your kingdom first. God, if I've done these things against your will, forgive me and help me. Give me the strength to fix the problems I've created. I can't make it without you, God. I don't want to try. I, don't, I want to learn. I want to learn from the lessons of Israel. I don't want to repeat their mistakes. So help me from this day forward, God, to put my confidence in you. Because if I'll start seeking you and seeking your face and seeking your will from this day forward, I may still have to deal with some leftover problems. But I believe my future will be much brighter. I believe the days ahead can still be glorious ones as long as I put my confidence in you and let you guide my steps. Come on, everybody, everybody. Just a few more minutes, let's talk to God. Just a few more minutes, let's talk to Him. I need you, Jesus. I've got to have you in my life. I want your presence. I want your power. We need you, Jesus. Jesus' name, Jesus' name. Praise God. God bless you. Thank you for your patience with me today. Amen. We will try starting next week, the Lord willing. Try to pick it up. And I promise you, I've made sure that the next even.